Welcome to Co-op Energy Talk. I'm Rachel Johnson, the Member Relations Manager at Cherryland Electric Cooperative. I'm not sure if you are all aware, but we've recently elected a new president. Uh, the transition from the Obama administration to the Trump administration is underway. It's clearly been smooth and completely without controversy. Uh, and here at Cherryland, one of the things we're watching and trying to wrap our arms around is what a Trump presidency will mean for energy policy and energy regulations. So joining me today to t discuss this topic are Tony Anderson, our general manager here at Cherryland. Hey, Tony. Good afternoon, Rachel. Uh, Craig Bohr, the CEO of the Michigan Electric Cooperative Association, or MECA. One of the primary roles of MECA is to lobby for the co-op's interest in Lansing and in D.C. Welcome, Craig. Good afternoon. And our final guest is calling in today from D.C. Kirk Johnson is the Senior Vice President of Government Relations at the National Rural Electric Cooperative Association, or NRECA. Kirk has been with NRECA for 15 years, lobbying on behalf of electric cooperatives across the U.S. Thanks for taking the time to chat with us today, Kirk. Really happy to be with you, Rachel. So, Kirk, to kick us off, can you just kind of lay the groundwork with what you see emerging as Trump's energy priorities? Yeah, this will be a very interesting time. Uh, we have certainly seen a number of things, both out of his campaign and then since uh, since the election, where he's begun to focus on, on energy issues, I'd say probably in a couple main areas that we can dive into uh, deeper a little later. The first is sort of an umbrella issue of infrastructure and trying to make sure that we can maintain, improve, and further develop the infrastructure that supplies the nation's, you know, not just electricity, but all energy resources, whether it's oil and natural gas, electricity, um, you know, the whole, the whole enchilada. So I'd say uh, that infrastructure piece is first and foremost. Second, uh, a big emphasis on domestic resources. You know, it's been a priority for uh, really every president since uh, going back to uh, back to Nixon uh, with the uh, Arab oil embargo, and uh, to try to to try to make us less dependent on foreign sources of energy. And I think he's going to continue that and try to lay the groundwork for more development of uh, resources here uh, domestically. Uh, and then, sort of a third umbrella area that's a theme of, of his is in the whole area of regulatory relief, and that is trying to uh, remove barriers to develop that infrastructure or to develop those domestic energy resources uh, so that we can develop those, uh, those tools uh, more cost-effectively and more efficiently with less, less time, less delay, and less money spent uh, to ensure that we are, are getting the job done, whether it's uh, developing a new oil pipeline, a uh, new transmission resource, or even siting a new power plant. And I expect that as he and his team get further into uh, their time in office, we'll see them drill down even more deeply into dozens, if not hundreds, of uh, specific energy-related issues. Awesome. So to kind of, I think I'm going to take those in the reverse order you said them, if you don't mind. Um, and, and Tony and Craig, feel free to jump in. But what are you expecting to see in kind of the regulatory realm under Trump? And what are we seeing already? Yeah, so the first thing that the Trump administration did uh, the day that he was inaugurated uh, was to sign uh, a, an executive memorandum essentially telling every federal agency uh, to put a freeze on all regulatory and rulemaking activities 
so that the new administration can come in and make judgments about whether uh, the ongoing activities of various agencies uh, make sense and fit with their overall agenda or if things need to be uh, changed or reversed. And, of course, they put uh, exceptions in that, uh, that order to make sure that things that needed to get done for national security uh, or other reasons uh, that they were able to move forward. Uh, but really they wanted to call uh, a, uh, a timeout on agencies developing new rules and regulations. And then the second formal uh, thing that they did was to uh, ask federal agencies to hold off on publishing any rules in the Federal Register to make them effective. If there was a rule that had been finalized in the last few days of the Obama administration, they asked that those uh, rules not be published in the Federal Register, again, so that they could take a look at them and determine whether or not they fit in with the administration's uh, economic growth and development agenda uh, or not. And then the third thing that they did is for those rules uh, that were published but have not yet taken effect, they asked all the agencies to uh, extend their compliance dates by at least 60 days so that, again, they could take a fresh look at those uh, those rules, uh, those requirements that, uh, that were passed uh, or that were addressed in the final days of the, of the previous administration. And that's all about getting their arms around everything that's going on across the entire breadth of the government so that they can begin to put their stamp in their direction on those agency actions. So they've already begun taking a number of steps uh, to change the regulatory direction uh, in a way that's, uh, that's, that is intended to be more deregulatory in nature, that's intended to put more decision-making uh, at a local as opposed to a national level, uh, and uh, as I said at the beginning, to try to incentivize and encourage and free up uh, infrastructure development uh, and resource development uh, here in this country. And then there are a number of rules and regulations that were developed during the uh, Obama administration that they will want to modify or repeal. And that's what they'll be doing in kind of the next steps. And they're looking across all federal agencies uh, to determine where they want to go and what they want uh, what they want to do with those rules that are on the books that will take you know some time, usually uh, maybe two to three years uh, to change, modify, or repeal them. And one that's been uh, on our list for a while here is the Clean Power Plan, which has a big impact on the uh, entire electric utility sector across the country. When you talk about they in the context of the Trump administration, who is the they? Who who is who are his energy advisors right now? Yeah, that's a great question, Tony. And that is a list that is getting uh, fleshed out each and every week, because when the administration comes in, they have there are four thousand positions that are presidential appointment positions, and that includes a whole variety of staff within the White House and what's called the Executive Office of the President. Uh, to political appointees at federal agencies. And so the president has nominated his secretary of energy, his secretary of the interior, his uh, EPA administrator, and those folks are all awaiting a vote of the U.S. Senate to formally take their positions. In the meantime, what happens is there uh, is a group of essentially temporary employees that, that were probably folks who worked on the campaign 
and they will go into the agencies for 30, 60, 90 days uh, to help provide transition assistance and begin a dialogue with the folks who are there, regardless of who's in the White House, those career uh, officials who are are professional government employees, uh, to ensure that they understand the direction the new administration wants to go in. And so there are, at every department, a group of anywhere between, say, 10 and 30 people who've migrated from the campaign and then the formal transition off apparatus that was in place between the election and his swearing in. And so there are a number of people who have been involved in that. We've uh, interacted with a number of them. It sounds like the person who is going to go work in the White House and be the president's top energy advisor is a gentleman named Mike Catanzaro, uh, who's someone we've worked with uh, for many years here at NRECA. He had worked on, on Capitol Hill uh, in both the House and the Senate in previous years, and uh, most recently was at a law firm uh, doing a variety of energy-related activities. And he's been a, a key influencer and key advisor throughout the whole transition period, and sounds like he will end up in that top energy advisor position uh, to the president, in addition to Governor Perry from Texas, who will be the Department of Energy secretary when he gets confirmed, and Mr. Zinke and uh, Attorney General Pruitt for Interior and EPA. So there are actually a lot of voices in that mix of who is the, the, the they that I'm talking about. And honestly, at this point in a transition, um, it's often hard to get your arms around who are the people who are helping to make the key decisions, aside from a core five or six people at the very top of the White House, the people that you see in the news media uh, every day. So, Kirk, along those lines, can we talk through some of those cabinet picks that this week, most of them will probably be confirmed in the next week or so? Um, what is, you know, let's we'll start with maybe um, Rick Perry. What does the Department of Energy look like under a Secretary Perry? He's, you know, been criticized a little for his lack of a science background and some of his past statements about the Department of Energy. What do do we see with how he will guide the Department of Energy? Yeah, and there I think you need to look at a couple of different places to get a sense of, of what he does in that role. When he was governor of Texas, he played a big role in Uh, the development of oil and gas uh, within the state, uh, and also the development of renewable energy, particularly wind in the western part of of Texas. Um, Then you have to overlay that on the core mission of the Energy Department. And honestly, the biggest biggest single piece of activity that goes on within the Energy Department is management of our nuclear stockpile in the United States. So he will have to spend some time on that. Uh, He'll also spend some time trying to figure out if the Department of Energy is organized in the way that makes the most sense for today's day and age. You know, it was set up under President Carter, and we have not done a full revamp uh, of the structure of DOE since then. And just uh, over the weekend, the chairman of the House Energy and Commerce Committee Chairman Walden from Oregon announced that he is appointing a member of that committee who's a former chairman of the committee, Joe Barton from Texas, asking him to work with Governor Perry to take a look at the whole structure of DOE and determine whether or not there needs to be some some realignment of resources within within the department. 
And so we interface with them on a variety of activities from their research agenda, and they are a big driver of energy research uh, at the federal labs uh, in this country. And we partner with them to try to help develop common sense technology solutions that can help uh, bring energy to normal citizens uh, more affordably and more reliably. Uh, and so there may be things they can do there. They do a lot of work in determining appliance energy efficiency standards, for example. And in the previous administration, we saw some examples where they um, where they set very, very stringent standards that increase the cost of, uh, of appliances. Um, and there, some of us had to push back on some of those things. So we'll see uh, how he does in terms of setting efficiency standards for uh, for uh, appliances and, and other things at the uh, at the department, and then he'll uh, he'll be just a he'll be help provide the president insights into big picture direction of where we want to go, and that'll require a combination of work between him uh, and other uh, other department uh, heads, other cabinet members. Kirk, isn't one of the real issues uh, with respect to any new administration and any new appointees? the ability to sort of change course of the battleship. And what I mean by that is many of these things will take a good deal of time to implement or work their way through the process. The other issue in play here is the fact that uh, many of these issues have been deferred to the states in terms of things like renewable portfolio standards, as an example. Any appointee uh, will, will not have much, if any, impact on things like that. So it. It, it takes a good deal of time for these folks, uh, again, irrespective of party, who they are, to implement some of the wishes of, of any any administration. No, you're exactly right, Tony. Uh, turning a battleship is exactly the right metaphor for a lot of these things. And you start that by, you know, turning the wheel uh, a couple of degrees, and then you and then you have to keep on turning over time. And on a number of these areas, uh, one of the words I've used to describe what we should all expect in terms of the changing direction of energy policy in the country is we'll need to exercise some degree of, of patience because it does take and can take quite some time to get all the various interests uh, lined up in the same direction and to get the different agencies uh, moving in the same direction. And then with this uh, this federated government that we have between states uh, and federal officials, I mean, most siting decisions, most decisions over whether or not to grant a permit to build something are generally done at the state level. There are only some times when there's a federal role for that, and that's if there's federal funding involved or if it's a multi-state project uh, or uh, some other kind of project that uh, by law requires some national uh, national input. And so there need to be uh, discussions at all those levels of government, local, state, and federal, uh, to be able to exact the kind of change uh, that the administration uh, to, to get in the direction the administration wants to go in. So, Kirk, before we move on to talk about some of the other priorities you identified, um, what do you see for the EPA under um, uh, Scott Pruitt as administrator? What what shifts do you think we'll see, starting with the caveat that we know any changes will take a long time? Yeah, no. Um, so Attorney General Pruitt from Oklahoma is in the queue to get uh, his vote in the United States Senate. He's been among the more uh, controversial uh, 
uh, folks who've been nominated for cabinet positions. And so I expect that his vote will probably not be this week. Uh, that is the week uh, of February the 13th. And next week, Congress is back home uh, for work within their districts. And so I don't expect to vote on his nomination until probably the 1st of March uh, or so. He has uh, he spoke uh, at his confirmation hearing and in conversations with members of the Senate uh, in going through this process of being nominated. He has talked about trying to ensure that that policy is not set by the EPA, but that the EPA uh, is essentially the enforcer of the of the law and does not go uh, in the direction of trying to. Um, uh, trying to set policy and direction. Uh, so we will see him try to take some approach of unwinding a number of rules uh, or modifying a number of rules that were uh, c- completed during the Obama administration. And that's everything from the Clean Power Plan uh, to how the EPA, working with the Army Corps of Engineers, came up with the definition of what's called the waters of the U.S., which is really a fancy way of saying the waters that are regulated by the federal government as opposed to being regulated by uh, by state government. And so we'll see a whole long list of of those kind of rules that he will want to uh, want to modify. And he'll need to have his full team in place in order to be able to do that. And we've not yet seen any other names come forward for other political appointments at EPA, whether it's for the deputy administrator position, a variety of assistant administrator positions, and then there are 10 regional uh, office directors uh, of the EPA that are that are important in making the whole uh, the whole um, organization work efficiently and smoothly across all all 50 states uh, and territories. Uh, so there's a lot of work that needs to get done before he can really roll up his sleeves and get to work. The first job is getting the getting the team in place. And uh, he's going to be looking for input into the direction that EPA should be going. And so we've been working with some folks on the transition team to try to make sure that the electric cooperative voice is heard in that. And we'll be seeking opportunities to talk with him and his key advisors uh, and senior leaders of the of the. Uh, EPA once he gets put into place and officially takes over that role. So an education component is always a critical early component, particularly because so many people don't fully understand the difference between an electric cooperative and other segments of the electric uh, utility industry. Um, you know, being not-for-profit, being consumer-owned uh, makes a big difference in, in not just who we are, but why we do what we do. And making sure that people, all these new people coming to government jobs, understand that is one of our top priorities uh, for the beginning of any new Congress or any new administration. Where do you think they'll fall on the domestic resources, in, in particular fracking? Natural gas has uh, exploded over recent years, as everybody knows. Will the federal government overstep the states that are banning fracking or, or not? Yeah, on that, I don't, I don't think that they'll go so far as to try to prevent states from doing what, what those states see as in their best interest. But where you'll see the most work by the federal government on that question of fracking is on research into there have been allegations of water contamination, uh, et cetera. So they will probably, you know, continue to buttress that 
that body of research into, you know, how do you safely uh, make sure that you're getting those resources out of the ground without causing, uh, without causing other problems. Uh, they will look at issues related to uh, methane leaks from that kind of development, uh, again, to make sure that that when we are when we're, when we're harvesting those resources, that uh, it's being done in the most safe manner possible. There were some who were hoping that the previous EPA would go so far as to really put a stop uh, to fracking using either the Clean Water Act or the Clean Air Act uh, or another environmental law uh, to do that. And those uh, those forces will still be out there. But I think you'll see this administration probably take the approach of trying to ensure that the development is available, uh, but that it's done as uh, you know done safely and and reasonably. So another kind of domestic resource. What what do you see, or what are we seeing as the future of coal and under a Trump presidency? Does this does this change the future of coal? You know, there are so many so many cross currents on that question because there are policy issues that impact the future of coal, and then there are economic issues that don't have much to do uh, with federal policy that impact coal. So we've seen a decline in coal use in the country, and it's really for two reasons. One is there have been federal rules that have come into place that have that have made it uh, not economical to continue to run certain power plants across the country. And two, uh, as Tony mentioned, this this growth in the use of natural gas and the availability of natural gas at a really attractive price has helped utilities shift from coal uh, to natural gas without having a big economic impact on consumers at the end of the line. Now, if we had that same regulatory approach uh, coupled with very high natural gas prices, we'd be feeling that pain in our electric bills. Uh, but because of that low natural gas price, it's helped make it easier or, or less economically painful to make that shift. And so if the price of natural gas suddenly rises again, uh, and it's a commodity, we've seen it rise and fall uh, over decades, uh, it's entirely possible that we see uh, utilities go back to using more and more of the coal-based resources uh, that they have. Um, but it's it's very dependent on what the economics look like uh, for folks who are trying to, you know, in the case of electric co-ops, make the best decisions for consumers at the end of the line. And for those utilities that are regulated by public utility commissions, those utility commissions uh, have the role and responsibility of looking out for uh, for consumers as well. So there's certainly the possibility that through uh, changes in federal regulatory policy that we see, uh, you know, some greater use of coal. Uh, have as a fuel source for electricity, but it's complicated by many, many other factors uh, as well. And like I said, if natural gas prices stay low, uh, it's hard to envision a a very significant increase in, in coal use in the country. Kirk, and I think the other issue here, and we've seen it play out in, in our own backyard here in Michigan, is is irrespective of some of the activities at the federal level, many of these coal-fired power plants, at least in our state, were built in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. So they're 50-plus years old, and many of them have really served their purpose, and it is time to retire. 
uh, retire many of those uh, plants and uh, their replacements uh, by and large are two things renewables and natural gas after the obvious pipeline issue will hit will this administration put an emphasis on building infrastructure in the nuclear generation realm that's a really interesting question tony and i think the first approach they're going to take on the nuclear front is trying to address uh, the issue of what to do with spent nuclear fuel. I think that's very high on people's agenda uh, to make sure that we, that we deal with that element. Right now we have two nuclear power plants under construction in the country, and it is, it's uh, still relatively expensive, especially when compared to uh, natural gas at the price that it's coming in at uh, these days. Um, and so there's not a huge demand by utilities right now to be building new nuclear power plants, uh, and particularly because we don't see the kind of economic growth that requires new nuclear plants. But what we're seeing is a market impact on the existing nuclear fleet uh, that is not being called upon to run as often as uh, in the past, and therefore they're not getting revenue to help pay down the debt that is on those plants. And so we've seen a couple of states that have tried to uh, step in and ensure that those plants can continue to operate because they don't produce any CO2 emissions or, or other emissions that impact air or water quality. And so the folks who are really focused on keeping that existing fleet going. I think the place where the administration and the Department of Energy can play a role there is on that continued research focus, particularly on uh, smaller and what are called more modular nuclear reactors, uh, which are designed not to be as large as the uh, projects that we're building in Georgia and South Carolina right now, uh, but are designed to be uh, more scalable projects so that you can add to them as demand uh, increases. And there's been a lot of interest in that topic, but it hasn't gotten to the point where it's commercially available and at a price that is attractive uh, to utilities to invest in. Uh, but I think, I think we'll see continued focus on that research to make that resource more available to help bring down that cost uh, over time so that it does become a more viable uh, option at a commercial level uh, down the road. So that R&D side, I think, is where we'll see most work. You think this administration has the foresight to look out that far in, in advance? You know, can they vision three, four, ten years down the road? Well, I'll make a joke here. Every administration can vision four years down the road because they know there's an election then. Uh, I was trying to be nice. <laughs> but uh, you're, you're right in one respect, Tony, that there is a, a – um, We've I've been in Washington now about 25 years – and there's been an increased level of short-sightedness uh, in our political discourse uh, across the country. And I don't just hold that to be the responsibility of politicians. The media has a role to play in that. We as citizens have a role to play in that as well. But that's where if you get really good quality people into positions of leadership, they do tend to take a, a longer view. And I think, you know, just based on some of the names that I've heard being considered for senior level energy department positions, they're the types of types of folks who who would take a who would take a long view. And I think honestly coming from President Trump, um, you know, if his his name and reputation started 
uh, really in the infrastructure uh, business of building you know, building buildings. You know, not something that you're going to recover your cost over a one or three year period on. And so I think there there is an ability to take that long view, and frankly, there has to be, especially in 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 this world, and part of our responsibility as spokespeople uh, for you know, citizens who would benefit from that long view. It's up to us to try to make sure that that voice is is conveyed in as many different ways as we can to the administration as they as they fill all those positions they have to fill. Kirk, don't you think one of the issues as well on nuclear is a whole sort of break the company issue. I mean, I've been in, in, in meetings with uh, representatives from very large corporations that do business in our state, and, and they've said flat out, we're not going to build a nuclear plant because if we don't do it well, it breaks the company. I mean, you're talking about financial bets on some of these plants that approach $20 billion. And without some sort of federal or government, government guarantee, there, there's simply really no discussion around that. And we've, we have examples of that right in our own state here with Detroit Edison. They simply have talked about it for years, but it, I, I, my sense is it, it doesn't become reality without some sort of a government guarantee behind it, because if it's done improperly, uh, you break the company. That's a, huge, that's a huge issue. The types of investments that are needed are, I call it a bet the balance sheet uh, kind of an approach. And that's why the small modular reactors are more attractive to companies, because of the lower price tag, the lower capital investment, the lower risk profile that is being adopted, and the greater opportunity for partnerships where you can spread that risk across companies uh, does make it attractive. And then we do have some, uh, some incentives for new generation of power plants that originally came online after the 2005 energy bill, uh, so 12 years ago. And there are efforts to update and modernize those, those tax incentives to make sure that there sort of is a backstop there that can help company executives decide on on making on, on on dealing with the risk of building something as large as a nuclear power plant. So there's there's definitely got to be a role there where the federal government can say, you know, we're gonna we're gonna help you make these investment decisions uh, with some certainty about what the future looks like. So we don't we don't have a ton of time left, and I I want to pivot a little bit away from energy and and talk more about issues impacting rural communities. Um, this election was widely kind of touted as a, 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 the year of the rural voter, I guess, is the best way to say it. And as you pointed out earlier, Kirk, co-ops are different. We serve primarily rural communities. We're member-owned. We're not-for-profit. And I'm just wondering what we can do to sustain the momentum that rural communities have coming out of that election and what NRECA's plan is to do so. You know, our plan is just to keep reiterating the importance of rural America at every turn, that when we're talking with members of Congress, when we're talking with the administration, that we you know, continue to help remind all those officials about the importance of rural America and what vibrant rural communities mean for this country, uh, what a vibrant farm economy and agricultural sector means for this economy in terms of, you know, we've never had to deal with serious food shortages in this country. Um, you know, aside from people who are living in poverty and, and can't afford uh, quality food, um, there we've not gone through the sort of famine that impacted Ireland or, or France uh, in the 1700s. So we haven't had to go through that. And making sure that we've got strong rural communities and agricultural sectors is really important for our, you know, not just um, 
social welfare, but for our national security as well. And so just trying to remind people of the importance of those 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 rural communities that we serve is a is really a key priority for us. Uh, it sounds like uh, later on this week we'll be going to visit with some of those transition officials at the U.S. Department of Agriculture to begin building some of those relationships with uh, key leaders who have moved from the transition or from the campaign into the, uh, the positions of authority at the Department of Agriculture, and especially focusing on the rural development uh, area to ensure that key programs that are helpful and beneficial uh, to this country and to rural communities uh, get the fair shake that, that they deserve. And uh, so we'll just keep repeating that message as often and frequently as we can. Um, and I know lots of other groups in Washington are planning on doing the same thing, folks that represent agricultural producers, um, rural communities, small counties, uh, all of that. Folks are talking about trying to make sure that rural America is not is you know not looked down upon but looked up to and i think that's the position that we we deserve as rural americans kirk i wondered if you could just briefly elaborate on the role nreca played uh in the letter that it sent to the uh the trump uh team and to the president himself on along with several other organizations really championing some of these issues for rural america i wonder if you could just briefly uh chat about that Sure. We, uh, we sent a letter to the president uh, last week uh, asking him to ensure that either a senior member of his team in the White House was given the assignment of uh, looking out for rural America or that he create an office of rural policy or something like that within the executive office of the president. And we were joined on that letter by 40 groups uh, from across you know, all parts of, uh, of, the, of sort of the rural uh, community here in Washington, representing agricultural producers, uh, small uh, rural communities, etc. Uh, and the goal there is just to, it was one, one effort to make sure that we were reminding the administration to focus on uh, rural America. There's a second letter that's going to the president probably today or tomorrow uh, that will have, uh, again, a wide variety of representatives from rural America signed on to it, suggesting that if there is going to be a legislative package focused on infrastructure in this country, that it not just focus on urban roads and bridges, that it also focus on rural infrastructure and whether that's rural broadband, uh, rural roads, uh, rural bridges, um, rural hospitals, all those sort of community facilities uh, that the administration highlight the needs of of rural America as well. And it actually even showed up in a committee hearing last week on this infrastructure question where senators from all across the country uh, all sort of came together and were talking very similarly about the how much harder it is to develop, maintain, and build infrastructure in rural areas uh, than it is in, in urban areas. Uh, so we're just going to, you know, keep looking for every single opportunity that we can to put that that rural focus on all kinds of policy issues here in Washington D.C. Well, I think that kind of about wraps up our time for today. But before we leave, we're going to do co-op fun facts. So Tony, kick us off. What's your fun fact? Rio Grande Electric Cooperative in Texas. They serve just 13,500 meters, but their service territory covers 35,000 square miles. So think of a co-op one-third the size of Cherryland, but that has 20 times the service territory as what we serve in our 
six county uh, region here in northern Michigan. Wow, that's that's amazing. Craig? Michigan's electric co-ops employ nearly 800 people, and those 800 people are really a team to bring power in, in rural areas to around 350,000 homes and businesses throughout uh, our footprint here in Michigan. Awesome. Kirk, do you have one for us? I'm going to give you two, actually. Uh, the first one is this year is NRECA's 75th anniversary, so we are celebrating 75 years of providing service to 900-plus electric cooperatives from across the country, some that date back, you know, over 80 and 85 years. And the most recent electric cooperative was Kauai Island Electric Cooperative uh, in, on the island of Hawaii that was formed uh, just back in 2002. And we're even exploring new opportunities to have a couple of new cooperatives uh, created so that we can continue to share this business model, this consumer-owned, consumer-centric business model with other Americans to enjoy what it means to be not just a consumer of utility services, but an owner and uh, someone who's in charge of the utility as well. So my, that's a, thank you, Kirk, for that setup, because it's a perfect segue to my fun fact, which is that over its 75-year history, NRECA has worked with 14 different presidents. So they've weathered changes in administration throughout their entire history and still managed to um, advocate tirelessly on behalf of the rural communities that we all serve. And I have no doubt that you guys will continue to do so, um, and I want to thank all of you for joining me today to discuss what we think might be coming up in terms of energy under a Trump presidency. 